In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It isn't hard to identify with a biblical audience who are living in expectation. Sometimes when we're expecting something, we know the day we're expecting. Birthdays, holidays, first day of school, etc. Last day of school, depending on your age, I suppose. Sometimes we know that there's a momentous occasion on the horizon, but we don't know exactly when it'll happen, like the arrival of a vaccine. Sometimes expectation is mixed with dread, like the looming shutdowns and restrictions that are likely to come as COVID cases skyrocket throughout the winter in the Midwest. The Old Testament prophets spoke a lot about the day of the Lord, a cataclysmic day when Yahweh would come, judge the world, and establish his kingdom. As an often oppressed people, the day of the Lord gave Israelites of the Old Testament hope that God was going to throw off their oppressors. Those of us in the majority culture sometimes find the harsh words of judgment hard to swallow, probably because we don't have firsthand experience of the kind of oppression that they experienced. But maybe we might find some similarities when thinking of the hope and expectation that we feel about the end of a pandemic using that to inform our ability to sort of emotionally identify with the prophet's audience. How difficult then would it have felt to hear these words from Zephaniah? At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs, those who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. They weren't expecting judgment to come for them. Zephaniah preached during the reign of King Josiah, perhaps when Josiah was younger, before his discovery of the law and the spiritual renewal that he ushered in. We know that before Josiah in 2 Kings, the king was Amnon, or Amon, excuse me, and Amon served and worshipped idols during his reign, and God's people had strayed from the law. Whenever biblical writers talk about being in God's presence, though, the contrast of God's perfection with their fallibility causes a great deal of discomfort. In our reading today, Zephaniah tells his audience to be silent before the Lord, the kind of stillness and awe that happens when you are confronted with God's holiness. Zephaniah says that God has consecrated his guests, but it's ambiguous whether the people have been consecrated for the sacrifice or for the sacrifice, if you understand the difference. To be confronted by the Almighty God creates awe, maybe even terror. It's often described as the fear of the Lord. The disciples experience it just after Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. At the end, they don't worship and celebrate. They ask themselves in fear, who is this? Controlling wind and waves isn't just a party trick. It's mastery over the destructive forces of the sea. Earlier in the chapter, Zephaniah wrote that God would sweep away the earth, calling to mind the flood in Genesis. In the time of Noah, the sins of humanity were so significant that Genesis says that God regretted having created in the first place. And although God's people were looking forward to their redemption, God's justice was coming for everyone, the people of Jerusalem included. The warnings here in Zephaniah are like the warnings of Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, and the warning that though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them, and though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them, is directly out of Deuteronomy, when Moses warned the people just before entering the promised land that if they were to abandon the law, there would be consequences for their actions. So judgment wasn't coming out of nowhere. In God's patience, he had continually warned and called back his people to righteousness. So what exactly did they do that was so wrong? 
Well, like the other prophets, Zephaniah finds deficiencies in both their love of God and in their love of neighbor. There was immorality in the violence and deceit that filled the temple, and there was idolatry as the people of God had started to worship other gods in order to hedge their bets, paying homage to all the gods so that all of their bases were covered. Insurance, as it were. Again, especially for those of us in majority culture, these judgments are not our favorite passages to read. They make us uncomfortable. They might even make us afraid. And it makes sense to comfort ourselves by reflecting on the cross when Jesus was faithful in a way that none of us would be, on our behalf and for our benefit. But let's not jump there too quickly. Understanding the atonement, thinking through the mechanics, for lack of a better word, of how Jesus' death and resurrection free us from sin is more of an art than it is a science. And every faithful painting of the picture requires us to look at the holiness of God and recognize that justice is good. Sin is serious. It is a destructive force that undoes creation. And when we participate it, especially those of us who are in Christ, we are working contrary to God's plan to restore and renew all things. Setting all things right can't happen with a divine shrug, a no big deal. Downplaying sin doesn't amplify God's goodness, it turns forgiveness into permission. And anyone who has suffered a great wrong knows that no big deal would make God not loving but unloving and uncaring about suffering. Just read the Psalms. So reading about the day of the Lord as Zephaniah and other prophets describe it knocks us off our self-righteous pedestals. It reminds us that no matter how pure we believe ourselves or our mission to be, there will always be things that need to be purified. I want to further develop the idea of what God expects of us by turning to Jesus' parable this morning. In the parable of the talents, Jesus spoke of a master that entrusted incredible wealth to his servants. One talent was somewhere between 10 and 20 years worth of wages. So we might look at the talents and number them in terms of millions. And upon return, the master expected that his servants ought to have done something with this wealth. Now, since Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he's probably not talking about individual talents or gifts, but about Israel and the law. When God gave Israel the law, the expectation was that they would live by it, and in doing so, be formed into people who would be a blessing to the world. Instead, they strayed from it. And the people who were supposed to be part of the solution to the problem of evil became part of the problem themselves. Now, if we looked at this parable in isolation, we might end up mistaking Christianity for an exam-based religion, sort of like the show The Good Place, where all of our actions are reduced to a numerical score, and if we're good enough, God will give us a passing grade. But if that were the case, Jesus would not have spent so much time in his ministry with the least righteous, praising them for their responses to him. But because the point-based model is so hardwired into our brains, we tend to use Jesus' teaching not to rethink what God asks of us, but to reassign the point values. So, for instance, breaking the Sabbath, no longer a big deal, but anything mentioned on the Sermon on the Mount is now worth double. We've just reassigned our points and still assume that what God is going to do at the end is simply weigh us out for a grand examination. But this parable isn't meant to be a comprehensive vision of who God is as a final grand inquisitor. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, God is most clearly known to us through Christ. So instead of trying to work out a legal framework that informs us how we can avoid being the one who is thrown into outer darkness, 
We might instead meditate on the fact that only a few chapters after this parable, Jesus himself is thrown into outer darkness on our behalf. See, the good news is that human activity is futile in changing the ultimate fulfillment of all things. And even though I want to reflect on God's holiness, we can still allow ourselves to have hope be our primary posture towards God. In fact, the prophets themselves never preach God's judgment without hope. While the chapter we read from Zephaniah is pretty unequivocal that God is coming to bring justice, the very next chapter calls for repentance and recognizes God's tendency to relent in the face of penitent people. While justice is sure, God doesn't always establish it through wrath. If we need encouragement, look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians, a church who has the privilege of being remembered for their notable unrighteousness. He writes in the first chapter that God will strengthen them so that they will be kept blameless on the day of the Lord. And if he can encourage the Corinthians like that, maybe he might encourage us as well. So, what should we be doing? Well, listen to this last sentence from Zephaniah 1.12 again. The people who are punished are those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. Or in other words, those who tell themselves, God is not watching, we can do what we want. It is a functionally deist claim that whatever God exists out there, he is certainly not going to come and act in time and space. We must reject this idea. Jumping into our New Testament readings, the Christians in Thessaloniki were very aware of a globe-shattering power that would, without a doubt, act in time and space. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that spread throughout the known world, assured everyone that nothing bad could happen to you as long as the Caesars were in control and you were under their control. When Paul criticizes those who say peace and security, he's using a catchphrase that Rome used. It was the keep calm and carry on of the first century. But this, of course, was speaking peace, peace when there was no peace. Rome was not in the business of the hard work of true peacemaking. It was in the business of peacekeeping at the edge of the sword. It was about might and control. So living your life as if God were going to do neither good nor bad can manifest itself in two different ways. Our minds might jump first to a licentious free-for-all. God won't do good or evil, so I will go ahead and follow my own desires without consequence. No doubt that is a real problem, and maybe even what the prophet is addressing here. But there's another way it manifests, and that is to say that God isn't watching, so we must take matters into our own hands. God isn't watching, so we'll do the work for him. This seems like a good moment to take a brief tour into, detour excuse me, into politics. Like the Israelites in Babylonian captivity, we ought to seek the good of the society in which we find ourselves. And so I don't believe that isolation is an option for the church today any more than it was for the Israelites in exile. But political engagement always comes with the potential temptation to confuse the city of God with the city of man. We tend to applaud political leaders, presidents in particular, who call down God's blessing on America and use Christian language to describe their policy goals. The temptation to conflate God's kingdom with an earthly one is never more tempting than when your candidate, quote-unquote, is in office, or when you believe the country is headed in the right direction. Our faith must inform our politics, but let us always be on guard against the idea that our mandate as Christians is to unify America. Our mandate is to speak truth to it. Politics, like all aspects of our lives, are means, not ends. 
Our hope is not built on parties or presidents or policies, but on the king who is coming. So with all that in mind, are our actions important or not? You might go on to say, well, God is watching so I can rest back and do nothing. Well, the parable of the talents doesn't allow us for that. I think our response is not to ask ourselves, what have we done, where our point total is right now, but instead, what are we doing? Instead of living in fear that we are acting like the servant with the one talent, we can look to the good servants, the ones who hear, well done, you good and trustworthy servant, and notice what they're doing. Notice that they're the ones who take what they have and help it grow, let it expand. We ought to see the gifts that God has given us and wonder how God might use them to to become something even more, being sure to measure that increase not on the world's terms, but on the kingdom's terms. Paul helps point us in the right direction when he writes to the Thessalonians that they don't need to spend time worrying about the specific times and seasons of the day of the Lord. Instead of trying to discern when that day is coming, he gives them instructions on what to do in the meantime. He tells them to grow in faith, hope, and love, putting on the breastplate and helmet, and encourage one another. He calls them to individual work, growing in Christ, and spurring others to do the same. Not to be like those who are asleep, but to be like those who are awake. We, like the Thessalonians, shouldn't respond to the warnings and comments about the day of the Lord like doomsday preppers, focusing on preparing for the event itself. The promise of the day of the Lord is meant to give us hope that God is neither distant nor unconcerned. We are called to live into that hope, live right now into the reality that is coming, the day that is near, to take what we've been given by God and put it to work, allowing it to grow. To be particular, the question that all souls has to ask ourselves is this, what have we been given and what might we be called to do with it? Last week at our banner dedication, it was beautiful to hear how God has already worked in our church. God has been active in our midst, even through the last eight difficult months. God has blessed us with a community of people who love each other and people who are dedicated to pursuing God and making him known as good, true, and beautiful. Even as we recover and heal from the wounds we have experienced, we can look ahead and ask, what might God be calling us to do now? There is so much life in this community, and God wants to use it for his glory. His glory, which is on display when he is at work in our midst as we grow in our love for him, for each other within our community, and for the other who is outside our community. But we won't get there if we take all matters into our own hands, if our posture is that of defensiveness or protection. We're in a season of recovery in our church, but also one of reflection one in which we get to look back and see the blessings God has given us, the people he has brought into our midst, and then prayerfully wonder how we might step out in faith to do the work we've been called to do. Step out in risk. Step out in ways that make us uncomfortable, but perhaps God is calling us to do. Our reflection work must include both a recognition of the talents that we have and the talents that we don't have yet, the gifts that God might be bringing here, or maybe the weaknesses that we have that God wants to use for his glory so that he might be the one who gets credit. I pray that God may give us a clear vision of who he has called into our midst, the talents that we have been given, and holy imaginations as big as his kingdom for seeing how it might multiply and bear fruit for him 
and for his kingdom, which we can be sure is coming. Amen.